Every Omani in Kerry is of princely blood because they had a quarrel with their own family in Cork and rather than have bloodshed, they went into Kerry. Now it is said that the Manis of Blarney, of whom Father Prout was one, were really Kerry Omanis who came in as weavers to Cork in the early 18th century. If they are Kerry Omanis, and we believe them to be, they must be of exceedingly good Manis stock. As I say, we don't know who the Cork Manis like myself are. Uh, we've been there all the time, and we, uh, we, we don't know who our ancestors were, but the Kerry ones kept their pedigrees. It was easy enough only to go back 500 years. It is, I think, exquisitely ironic that Owen O'Mahony, who knew and indeed almost planted the family trees of all Ireland and half Europe, should be on record as confessing failure in tracing his own genealogy. But his stock was surely, as he would say himself, of no small distinction. Owen must have come of remarkable stock, of great and sturdy monster stock. As far as I know, his people were not poor. They weren't poor either intellectually or financially, but one of them intrigued me, and I only got to know something about her very recently. Owen was always hot on getting governesses recognised abroad as our official ambassadresses, and, of course, he had first-hand experience of this because his aunt, um, a Miss Christina O'Mahony, who died not a dozen years ago in her late 80s, had been a governess in Poland and in Russia. Now, Shira came home to nur- from Poland to nurse her parents. They would have been Owen's grandparents. And eventually she owned a largish public house in Shear Street in Cork City. And when cargo boats from Russia, coal boats from Poland, maybe an odd load of grain from the Ukraine, docked in Cork, the crews in relays visited Aunt Christina's pub. And there was always drink on the house and goulashes and other dishes from their homeland to await them, and, of course, she always spoke to them in their own languages. It wasn't off the wind he got it. That, by the way, was Norani Hulivon, who was associated with Oinomahane on Radio Aaron's Meet the Clans programme, and from whom we'll be hearing again. Now, Owen was an O'Mahony of Cork, but he belonged not just to Cork or to Munster or to Ireland but to Europe and indeed to the world. Since he left us, his friends are remembering him. How many friends there were and are. I'm sure their range extends literally from China to Peru, certainly from Austria to Australia, where his old editor, Father Senan, is ministering. To bring together a representative gathering to pay him tribute in well under an hour of radio is, of course, impossible. All we can do is call on a few who knew him and loved him. And this is surely a time when the two words really do mean the same thing. One of his oldest Dublin friends, old in years and in memory, is Frank Duff, founder of the Legion of Mary. He first met him nearly 50 years ago. I was uh, the president of a branch of the St. Vincent de Paul Society at the time. And uh, he comes on the scene one evening and presents himself as a member, prospective member. Now, nobody could be more different uh, at that time from the patriarchal figure that he has uh, uh, been seen as in more modern times. He was clean-shaven 
and he was quite slim. Now, if you can uh, reconcile that appearance with uh, what has obtained and uh, under which we know own, well, (coughs) it would be a difficult matter. I am able to do it because I have seen the two. Now, (coughs) uh, he was even different in manner at that time. That uh, certain, that slight flamboyancy that uh, has characterised him, in, as we have known uh, in modern times, was not there. He was much more serious. But in essentials, he was the same man. He was an undergraduate in Trinity at the time. And uh, he had already made a name for himself there for being a thoroughly sterling Catholic. Everybody respected him, and he had already won that reputation for eloquence which has hung around him. Now, that was not all. He settled down to a steady-going membership, but he brought into the conference a, a succession of the Trinity undergraduates, uh, <coughs> some of them English, Uh, But all of them, uh, a nice crowd, and justifying their membership uh, admirably. Owen was an equally admirable member of the Legion of Mary, and many students from Asia and Africa have experienced his gentle courtesy at the Overseas Club in Harcourt Terrace. In fact, Duff mentioned his reputation for eloquence even as a student, This was earned in college societies, both in Cork and in Trinity, where he was a luminary of the Common Gaelic and of the HIST, the College Historical Society, which celebrates its bicentenary this week. Owen's name stands on the role of auditors auditors of the society, and the present auditor, Ian Ash, now recalls his term of office, which is indeed still remembered. There were various things in that auditorship which made it remarkable particularly in that he was the first auditor to propose a toast to the to Ireland instead of the king. Now, uh, it is interesting to note that about three weeks before he died, I was speaking to him about this, and he mentioned that he did not do it for the College Historical Society, but more for Trinity College, because at that particular time, Trinity was didn't know exactly where it stood regarding uh, identity. And he, he proposed the toast in order to break the tension that existed in Trinity College at that time. Uh, also, three weeks ago, he consented to chair a meeting at the Society. And it was on this particular day that uh, Jerry Sweetman was so tragically killed. Uh, and there was a motion of regret that night. Jerry Sweetman was a member of the Society. And in the motion of regret, Mr... O'Mahony left the chair in order to speak to the motion of regret and made a very moving tribute to Jerry Sweetman, with whom he crossed swords many times during his auditorship. His auditorship, of course, was remarkable for many other reasons in that he was an auditor uh, who was somewhat uh, eccentric. Uh, On one occasion, he uh, took a trip down to Wexford with the records of the society and deposited records in each railway station with the record secretary following in the train behind picking up the records at each railway station. Now, why he did this is not known, but uh, 
It is interesting that when contributing to this anthology, which the society is producing for its bicentenary, uh, he didn't speak, in fact, on his auditorship at all. And uh, this is a great pity, because we'd have liked to know why exactly he deposited the records in each radio station. Owen was a law student and in due course was called to the bar. A Cork colleague at the bar, Rafe Sutton, remembers him in that capacity, although his uh, friendship was, in fact, of much longer standing. I knew him as a child, and uh, he was a friend of my family, and uh, uh, I suppose like so many other families, he was able to firmly establish that he was also a relation of ours. <laughs> I think he was. Um, I knew, then, of course, came across him a fair bit as a student, because uh, naturally, when I was in, in UCC, the, the great attraction was to try and get a hold of him for a meeting. When I was auditor of the philosophe there, he spoke at my inaugural. And I, I, I gave an inaugural on Parnell, and I remember the whole theme of his speech on that occasion was finding occasions when the bitterness of Irish political life was softened. And he told two, three or four stories that evening about occasions when the bitterness of the old political controversies were softened. But uh, one of the most fascinating experiences I had as a student of him, and very typical of him, was uh, an occasion in 1945 uh, when there was a centenary of Swift. And he came to us in the philosophe and he said that, of course, there should be a commemoration uh, of, uh, of Swift and he said that um, w at the time we were very short of funds and we, we said this to him and it didn't even occur to him that it was going to cost us anything he said he'd look after all that himself but he wanted to have not only a commemoration of Swift but he wanted also to honour Edith Somerville at the same time uh, Edith Somerville's family had entertained Swift uh, on, his, on the occasion of his visit to Castle Townsend. And he wanted to uh, bring this event together and commemorate it in Cork. So he said he'd look after everything, and all he wanted us to do was to arrange a lecture uh, to be given uh, by, I think it was Mr Flood of Limerick, was to give the lecture, and either some of them was to preside over it uh, in the college. But he arranged a lunch, and the lunch was absolutely magnificent. It was, as far as I could judge, entirely at his expense. There must have been certainly 40 guests at it. But the most attractive thing about it was the menu, because he had designed the menu so that each item would be named after one of either Somerville's books. And I, I've lost the menu. I don't know where it is now, but I can remember that the soup uh, alternatives were clear silver fox and thick Irish RM. And the entree was mushrooms all on the Irish shore. I can't remember what the main dish was, but the sweet was the real Charlotte Russe. And it was a real Charlotte Russe as well. <laughs> it wasn't the only party, of course, he gave in Cork in the days oh, of his glory. No. Because, of course, uh, as a child, uh, he was more, um, while I used to meet him, but his parties were a legend to me. Uh, Orne's main time in Cork, of course, was in the 30s, 
in those days he was doing a fairly active practice at the bar in Limerick, Clare and Kerry and also in Cork. And at that time he was very affluent and his affluence then uh, went as quickly as it did even when he was less affluent. His generosity was exactly the same whether he had it or whether he hadn't it. And uh, in 1935, before the High Court circuits were revived, the Munster circuit uh, didn't have the sort of regular dinners in Cork that it has now. But insofar as it had any uh, dinners, uh, Owen was the steward for the dinners. That is to say, it was his business to look after the food and the drink. And uh, because of that office he held... Atkins, who were the wine merchants to the circuit for a very long time, got on to him to tell him that the wine of the Munster circuit, which was stored in their cellars and which hadn't been used since pre-1920, was beginning to deteriorate. It couldn't be used for the dinners then because it was specially reserved for the High Court circuit, which didn't begin again until 1937, and so it became imperative that the wine should be disposed of. And Owen started off and he wrote to every member, past and present, of the Munster Circus and asked them to buy the wine. And among others, he wrote to Morris Healy. And quite by accident, about three years ago, I was buying books in a second-hand bookshop in Cork, some of which belonged to Owen, and uh, I found pasted into the back of one of them a, a letter that he had in November 1935 from Morris Healy. Well, the Munster uh, members did not buy the wine or didn't buy it in any great quantity because, of course, uh, Owen ended up by buying the great bulk of the wine himself. How much of it there was, I don't know. People who were students at UCC at the time, people who were adult in Cork at the time, uh, can give descriptions now of the most marvellous series of parties formal and informal, that were given at Dunmahan, his house. Uh, I've I known people who went there as students, and they said that they simply went on all night opening bottles of wine that he had there, some where the corks were gone, and some where the corks were certainly not gone and were in very good condition. But I remember the highlight of these parties was an afternoon party that he gave, and again, I, I wasn't at it because I was too young, but it was to commemorate the wild geese. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people were asked to it, and they were served with hock and moselle, which I think was the hock and moselle that had belonged to the Munster Circuit. Now, Owen preserved much more of the Munster Circuit in his spirit than the wine. Yes, very much so. And he was, a, you see, had a tremendous regard for the history of the circuit. He had all the legends and the songs and verse belonging to the circuit. And, of course, barristers are very bad in that, you see. They, there's always somebody who remembers the story and who remembers the song, but no one ever thinks of writing it down. But one would occasionally turn up to a circuit dinner. I remember particularly he turned up to a dinner we gave about eight or nine years ago to the late Henry Maloney when he was 50 years at the bar. And Owen brought with him sheafs of verse and songs and things that had been made up by people on the circuit. And 
We'd all hoped to get hold of them before he left the room, but he left the room, as far as I could see, with most of them under his arm, and where they are now, nobody knows. But he certainly could remember an awful lot of things. Uh, <coughs> while I was practising on the circuit, uh, he wasn't there. He had virtually ceased to practise on the Munster circuit before 1948. But he used occasionally turn up. Uh, he was rather like the scholar Gypsy. He had left us, but you were always hearing that he had appeared here or appeared there or suddenly turned up. And Sometimes for no reason at all he might turn up in Cork Courthouse. He might come in regularly every morning for a week or so, put on his wig and gown, be seen in court, and then he'd suddenly disappear again. You wouldn't quite know where he'd gone to. But I remember one delightful occasion where, for no explicable reason, he turned up in Skibbereen when the circuit court was there. And we were so pleased that he turned up that we spontaneously arranged to give what turned out to be a highly successful dinner at the West Cork Hotel in Skibbereen. Uh, and I think the occasion of the dinner was to celebrate the fact that he had turned up. <laughs> and it was most rewarding. And he was full of chat. But the scholar Gypsy had so often business elsewhere. Wherever, indeed, he could offer the sword of his silver tongue and golden heart in defence of the weak or the lonely or the half-forgotten. Mrs. William O'Brien, perhaps, or those Irish Republicans who spent the years of the Second World War in English jails and whose release was largely due to his championing of their cause. Leo Dagnan from Leitrim and his wife, Governor Nihulavain, remember him with great love and gratitude. Well, personally, my own opinion is that were it not for Owen, the prisoners would have spent a term of four to five years longer than they did spend. There were many of the prisoners, of course, who Owen wasn't able to do anything for because he came into the field when their sentence had expired and therefore couldn't help them. But he did work hard and long and diligently for the 20-year the 17-year, the 14-year and 12-year men. He lobbied in the House of Commons and went from lord and lady throughout England diligently, week after week, worked on this particular cause and brought it to fruition and he reached the stage of taking affidavits for the men who were sentenced for deeds that they were not present at. I think you yourself, Governor, were involved in that, weren't you? Yes, that's right. I happened to uh, uh, be with one of them, a uh, chap called Nelson, uh, the night that he was supposed to have been at this incident. And uh, they had uh, deported me uh, before his trial came up in order that there would be no witness. And uh, towards this end, Ono Mahani asked me for an affidavit simply because uh, he knew or he thought this boy was innocent and uh, he tried to fight that cause as far as... Uh, push that cause as far as he could. Well, I think all the way through, his conviction and his feeling was all for the good of these lads. However much or little he would sympathise with what they were doing. Well, however much he sympathised with the cause, 
are the methods for which they were trying to achieve the cause. He did sympathise with the cause, but in all probability, I don't think he approved of the methods that were taken on by the expeditionary forces of 1939. But that his charity was such that it outweighed any hindrance he had towards falling in line with those boys and helping them in their plight. He looked upon it as a plight, that they found themselves in a particular state in which they could do nothing for themselves, and he regarded them as the forgotten and lost patriots of Ireland. Many of them knew that he spent every shilling and borrowed to spend on our behalf. Now, he couldn't do much for me because my own sentence had expired and I was staying beyond, as it were, on an extended vocation, beyond my time. But in this, I understood how he worked. I met him very many times in Parkhurst and I understood how diligently he worked for to get those boys released. And as I said earlier on, I am very convinced that were it not for the efforts of one O'Mahony, many of the 20-year, 16-year, 17-year and 14-year men would have done the most of their time. His own truth and his own sincerity, of course, I think, convinced everybody. Well, his sincerity and his charity was terrific. And when he went to the House of Commons and lobbied, as he did, and went to the residence of the Lords of England and sat and dined and with them, his sincerity and his belief in the goodness of those boys who were serving the cause of Ireland went across to the English people in a way that they thought, well, if Ono Mahoney is so convinced that those people are good boys, then they must be good boys. And the main thing he did was to bring to light the fact that many of those boys were sentenced for deeds that they did not do, simply because the policy was not to recognise the court at the time and I am staying, of course, that all those boys that were sentenced were members of the IRA. And if that was a crime, we're guilty of such. But they were sentenced for crimes, that so-called crimes, that they had no act, part or knowledge of. That was to get them out of the way, to get them out of circulation. Own honesty was so clear that he even mentioned to the Englishmen themselves that it was better that ten guilty should go free than that one innocent should suffer. And he claimed that he had five innocent men that he could prove. And before he got a chance of proving this, the Home Office woke up to the fact that it's better let them all out. And they did this in groups of two or three. Characteristically, Owen's ministry to those in prison was not confined to the Irish. I remember George Desmond Hodnett's affectionate ballad. In Cornwall, Wales and Brittany, in Scotland and the Isle of Man, they all know Owen O'Mahony, the legal travelling man. A slight exaggeration, perhaps, but the post-war Breton prisoners had certainly good cause to know him. Owen O'Mahony 
has been sometimes described as a defender of lost causes. But speaking as a Breton, Jan Gullet would disagree most strongly. Well, I would not agree that is a fair point. On Manning has been a lot more than a defender of lost cause. He has been a defender of just cause. There is, to my mind, not such a thing as a lost cause. Cause are just or unjust. He certainly was a, a defender, and he helped to defend the cause of the Breton people. He certainly did, and we owe to On Many a, a great debt of gratitude. On Many had the courage to do what many other people would have willing to do, but they were afraid to do so. In the case of a Breton nationalist called Geoffroy, he succeeded in doing what I would describe as the impossible. Geoffroy was under a sentence of death. He was in the death cell for more than six months ready to be executed. And thanks to Onomani sincerity, thanks to Onomani tenacity, Geoffroy succeeded to be free. For doing so, Onomani had to convince not only the French people, but mainly people all over the world who then succeed, who put their strengths together and fight beyond Onomani and free Geoffroy. I will put Onomani in the same class as people like James Larkin. At the beginning of the century, certainly the cause of the workers in Ireland could have been described as a lost cause. And it was thanks to people like James Larkin that it was shown as a just cause. Now, uh, Owen Nomani's work in defence of Breton prisoners was not confined to the case of Geoffroy, was it? Oh, no. In many other cases, Owen Nomani... Uh, raise his voice. I'd like especially to recall a friend who stayed in Ireland for a long time, his name Josian Gourlet, and uh, Josian Gourlet came back to Brittany, was thrown into jail, and for two years was in jail without trial. And he would have certainly stayed there a long time, longer, if on money hadn't started the same campaign, same successful campaign, which got Geoffroy out of jail. Well, it's nice to think that Onomahony's name is remembered among Bretons. And it will be remembered forever. John Ryan, who worked with Owen on a number of good causes, would admit that while no cause was lost, one or two minor ones were perhaps uh, slightly mislaid. There was, for instance, the famous occasion when the late Brendan Behan and two friends had a slight difference of opinion with three members of the staff at the front gate of Trinity College. They wanted to take a shortcut through college, a certain resistance was offered, and as John Ryan says, a slight affray occurred and the Gortha Shikona was summoned. All three were lodged in the Bridewell, having been, as we would now say, busted by the fuzz. 
I was contacted and realising that the charges could be quite serious, sought out and found the Pope, who was actually living in Trinity at the time. Oh yes, I remember that's where one used to write to him in those days. Or, surprisingly enough, the men's hairdressing salon in the Gresham Hotel. Many's a letter I had from him bearing the crest and address of that esteemed establishment. But, as I was saying, Brandon and his two companions, whom we will call, for the purpose of the tale, Carmichael and Daly, were severally and jointly charged with conduct likely to be lead to a breach of the peace, insofar as they did attempt, and indeed caused, actual bodily harm to the three persons to wit porters at the front gate of Trinity College. All parties duly assembled at court number two Morgan Place. The Pope had, needless to remark, presented himself with no question of fees to act for the defence. It was one of those open and closed sort of cases, you did it or you did not. The evidence that the defendants had done it was, alas, overwhelming. The best own could do was make a plea for leniency, grounded on the defendant's youth, fiery patriotic temperament and acute social consciousness. His experience at the bar more than likely told him that all this would not cut much ice, but at least his prayer would not, not do much harm either. Meanwhile, he had discovered that one of the defendants had six children, a useful plea for mitigation, should the worst come to the worst. Unfortunately, in the hurly-burly of the last-minute consultation with the defendants, he got the names of the two other defendants mixed up and instead of begging the court to be particularly clement to Carmichael, the father of the six children, he addressed himself to the judge most movingly and most eloquently on behalf of the unmarried and childless daily. The sum of the matter was that Bean and Carmichael got a month, while Daly got a fortnight. Protests from the dock by Carmichael were sternly put down by the judge, who threatened contempt of court if there were any further irregularities. There was not much else to be done about it. Brendan told me afterwards that the next time the Pope offered to defend him for cycling a bicycle without a light, he would probably be hanged. On the other hand, he said, it would be churlish to turn down so well-intentioned an offer. Oh, the stories are endless, but of course there was much more than the stories. There was indeed... He was one of the founding fathers of conservationism. Indeed, when I first knew him, he was a man of the trees. I wonder indeed what's happened to those men now. But um, he always had a very keen and poetical eye for the felicities of natural and architectural environment. And long before anybody else really did anything serious about preserving our historical buildings, he was working hard at preserving Caher Daniel, Derinan, the birthplace of Daniel O'Connell. And right up to the end, he was a tireless worker on behalf of the Georgian Society. Yes, he was one of our earliest members. And whenever he appeared, of course, a string of friends accompanied him. Thus Mrs Desmond Guinness. The other evening at the Irish Georgian Society's headquarters in Mountjoy Square... I spoke to herself and to Professor Kevin Nolan, who talked about Owen's passion for history. The thing about Owen was that he could call up a whole picture of a period 
And not merely that, but he could bring all sorts of traditions and ideas together. He was, as you know, deeply devoted to the memory, to the traditions of the old Gaelic families, the McCarthys and the rest of them. On the other hand, he was also a man who, I think, was passionately concerned about the story of the wild geese, many of them of the old English families which settled in Ireland after the coming of the Normans. And lastly, but not least, he could tell many a scurrilous and charming story of the rollicking ascendancy of the 18th century and indeed later. And I think it was this ability to bring various strands in Irish life together to evoke a picture of a period, to evoke a, as it were, a comprehensive impression of Ireland. Uh, I think this was Owen's great contribution. Mention of the McCarthys reminds me of your hilarious story about the trip to Bordeaux. Yes, Owen was a great help on the Irish Georgian Society's excursions abroad and also to remote corners of Ireland. Once when we went to Bordeaux, we arrived at Dublin Airport, the assembly point, and Owen appeared with the most enormous wreath, six foot high, at least six foot wide. It was a present from the McCartys of Cork to the McCartys of Bordeaux, and he wanted to lay it on the tombs of the McCartys of Bordeaux. So the Erlingus Ahestis reluctantly allowed it into the aeroplane. Uh, when we changed planes in France, the Air France ones were a little bit more doubtful about it, however they allowed it. And when we arrived at Bordeaux, it had to spend three days in Owen's hostess's bathtub, which meant that nobody could have a bath to keep it fresh. And when finally the Pont Funèbre opened up the cemetery at Bordeaux, it transpired there were no less than five tombeaux Macarty. However, Owen ambled through this immense cemetery with, with great grace, breaking off sprigs of this wreath so that all five of the tombs had a branch from cork. In the end, the skeleton of the wreath was laid into the tomb of the Lynches, Le Lynch de Galway. Again, the great gift for improvisation. But apart from the, uh, shall we say, the, the more spectacular <laughs> aspects of the Irish Georgian Society's uh, activities, he did contribute to the ordinary hard work of the society a great deal, I think. Well, he contributed, shall we say, colour and life and enthusiasm to the ordinary hard work of the society. And, of course, he did a great deal of work here in Mountjoy Square. He was a very constant visitor to the headquarters, helping with the library and so on. And I, one of my last memories of Owen, as a sad memory, is to see him clambering up the high Georgian staircases, getting tired, but still persisting, and insisting also in joining in the conversation while always tempted to relapse into sleep. And it is a pleasant memory of a gentleman of great culture, of great wit, and of great integrity. A man who, as you say, brought many traditions together and who brought many people together. Yes, I remember standing outside St Mary's Abbey in Dublin and by chance it happened to be open, so he swept me up and several urchins who were standing in the gutter Come in, my children, he said, and look at your great heritage. And so we disappeared into this basement. But within an instant, he made the whole story of Silk and Thomas live forever in our minds. One of Owen's uh, particular enthusiasms found a focus in the Military History Society. Here is Dr. Gerald Sims, a vice president of the society and also a very old friend. 
Yes, it's uh, over 40 years since I first met him. Uh, he was a friend at college of my wife's brother, and he came up to her home on the day that I got engaged, and he used often to remind us of this, but uh, he made a great impression on me, even at that stage. Uh, I was away for many years from Ireland, but when we came back, we came to live in Clonsky, very near Milltown, and Owen used to go every year for a retreat with the Jesuits, but he would come in to us for breakfast after the retreat because we lived nearby. And uh, we always welcomed Owen fresh from his retreat with the Jesuits. I used to meet him a lot at meetings of the Military History Society. He was a very keen member and nearly always made his own inimitable contributions after the lectures, uh, full of entertainment and learning uh, with the genealogical side of military heroes well to the fore. Uh, at the outings, uh, he was a wonderful social mixer and was able to make everyone feel at home on the battlefield or the fortress that they were visiting. Uh, the last meeting of the, of the society was two days before he died, and Owen was there. He was unwell, but he insisted on coming because the lecture was being given by the son of a very old friend, the late Dermot Murta, who was one of the founders of the Military History Society, and Owen was determined to come and hear the lecture that was being given by his son Harmon to uh, the society about Richard Grace, who defended Athlone against a Williamite army. And Owen was in his element. He knew all the genealogy of the Graces and the Condons, who were Grace's mother's people, and he wound up with a wonderful anecdote about a bogus invitation to dinner at a ruined castle on a remote hill in County Cork. And this was a very characteristic performance, and I think that those who were there will remember it with great affection. And at all our gatherings of the Military History Society, we'll miss his unmistakable presence and all his flow of information and anecdote, and also his great social gift, the gift of putting the shyest stranger at his ease. Dr. Sims' tribute is echoed by another historian, one of his Jesuit friends, Father Francis Finnegan, who speaks of him as a great Catholic gentleman, free from any taint of bigotry. Without any touch of bigotry, he was incapable of bigotry, for faith and charity were strong in Owen. Uh, for instance, a chance meeting with Owen in O'Connell Street or at the National Library, and you were invariably introduced to some friends of his of other faiths. Uh, on a number of occasions at Clongus and the Crescent, uh, Limerick, I can recall paying a visit with Owen to the church. 
and inside the church I noticed his eye would turn quickly in the direction of a lady's statue, and I always had the impression that when he prayed to God and the saints, he must have shown something of that exquisite courtesy towards the Mother of God, the virgins and the holy women that he prayed to, that he showed to women here on earth. I remember vividly, too, his emotion at the prospect of attending the forthcoming ordination of a nephew and assisting at his first Mass. One could speak, certainly, of his piety, and piety in uh, all senses of the word, a piety for his friends and his dead friends. He was a great funeral-goer, wasn't he? Ah, yes, uh, because uh, genealogy wasn't his only interest. He was uh, very, very interested in funerals. (laughs) And uh, I suppose only the recording angel uh, can tell how much he spent out of his neediness on wreaths. And a wreath from poor own very probably uh, meant a couple of days of subsequent fasting until Providence, I suppose, sent some kind friend across his path to bring him off for a meal somewhere. He must have attended funerals, as a matter of fact, in every county of Ireland, and it was no uncommon experience to hear from Owen the bulletin of his engagements of the previous week. This would be the kind of thing. On Monday in County Kildare, for the funeral of a great-great-grandniece of one of O'Connell's most sturdy supporters in Emancipation Year. That's the way Owen would almost say it. Wednesday in County Limerick for the funeral of the grandson of a fine one-time nationalist MP. And Thursday in County Cork for the funeral of an old family friend. No journey was too long to bury the dead or help the living. Nora Nihulawan recalls what a remarkable traveller he was. Oh, he was an enormous traveller. And, you know, when the heart was young, he must have gone like a wild bird. But even in recent years, when he'd been so ill for five and six years, he was still managed to get to places with incredible mobility. He would muster all his energy and get up in the morning singing and arrive at maybe a train in Westland Row to get to Mullingar by half past ten for making great forays on the Midlands for Meet the Clans. And it's incredible the number of people who would come to the rescue. The military in Mullingar always met him and fated him and had packed lunches ready for him. Similarly in Athlone, and there were friends all over the place to meet him with great joy um, when he was getting down in towards Galway. Now, it's extraordinary how he would get out of his hospital bed, uh, do his meet the clans, perhaps get on a plane for Bordeaux, get to Culloden, um, get to Fontenoy, get to Madrid, and all this uh, among hot work on the radio, get up to the fair at Ballycastle. I think that was his latest venture. He arrived there every year recently, went to the fesh and the glens, and was always at the, the casement commemoration. He would even cross from Kerry, walking all night to get to the casement commemoration. He was an astonishing traveller. And, of course, in re- more recent years, although, wait, before I get to the more recent years, the um, your mention of Bordeaux and Mrs Guinness's story about the wreath, you were telling me that you knew something of the prehistory of that wreath. Oh, yes. Um, Owen had it made from an oak tree originally planted by Parnell, and it was meant to decorate Tom Kettle's bust in Stephen's Green, but the board works and other cautious people may have been afraid of incidents, and it wasn't taken for its usual purpose. So Owen picked it up on his way from hospital, 
to the plane for Bordeaux and brought it to Bordeaux, where it was kept in the cool in his hostess's bath. She couldn't have a bath for five days. And um, his beloved Mrs. Guinness, with great imaginative insight, helped him and organised a free day for him when he brought the whole Georgian society to the Chartreuse Cemetery. Uh, with Mrs. Guinness's aid, of course, he broke all the laws and told the gendarmerie of the graveyard that they would have to allow cameras because these men, these Irishmen, many of them had died for France, two of them had even saved the city of Bordeaux, and that a record must be taken home to Ireland of the 18th and 19th century hospitality of the Bordeaux people to the Irish. And, of course, the rule was broken. And Mrs Guinness uh, supplemented with vast bunches of flowers, and flowers were laid on the graves of the ex-Shaws, on the graves of the Suttons, on several McCarty graves and on the graves of the O'Burns, as well as most of the big wreath on the grave of the Lynches. And it was a great tribute that 45 people marched in the heat of a Bordeaux afternoon. There were Scots, English, French, as well as the uh, big Irish contingent, Jewish people, Catholics, Protestants, all to do honour to the Irish 200 years dead and gone. And all brought together by Owen. All brought together by this bit of genius. And yet always... The practical side. You remember the Valencia Bridge campaign? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, Father Enright, uh, who was parish priest of Valencia, was ordained in Salamanca. And another one of Owen's journeys in recent years, about two years ago, was to, uh, pay, to go to Salamanca, to the Irish college there, to pay tribute to the many Irish students. And he remembered Father Enright when we were looking at the beautiful bridge in Salamanca with the great cathedral crowning it. And he mentioned that of all the sons of Salamanca, Father Enright would be remembered because of this bridge on Valencia Island. He would be remembered by the Munster people. And I'd like to think it was Father Enright invited Owen to be attorney for the bridge. And he brought that troublesome inquiry to a very successful conclusion there. And I should like to think that when the sick of the island are being taken safely across the bridge, when the gales are howling in the ferry, that they will remember Owen O'Mahony. And how right indeed that Owen O'Mahony should be remembered as a builder of bridges. Owen belonged to Western civilization, And also, if I had uh, been asked... Uh, of course, they don't do that nowadays, but if it had been asked to uh, preach a panegyric on own, I think I'd have chosen for my text one of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. And I hope, by the way, it's not anticipating the verdict of the Church uh, to say that all must now be in that heavenly Jerusalem to which we're all aspiring. And it, one can almost suggest that He's already sizing up there the genealogies of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think the final word of tribute must most appropriately come from the Chancellor of the Order of Malta, Count Alban O'Kelly, who recalls that Owen was a member of the Order for many years. He's been a member of the Order, I think, since 1941, and he was a very loved member uh, all our members appreciated him and were ready to welcome him on any occasion in which he appeared. I would say that his greater interest in the order was its historical significance. 
Owen loved to go back over the centuries, and in the order of Malta, he was able to go back nearly a thousand years. But apart from his historical interest, he took an intense interest in the charitable works that we are doing. And, of course, those of us who knew him know that he was one of the most charitably-minded men it was possible to meet. I read with very considerable interest the appreciation of Owen, which appeared in the Irish Times, written by Hubert Butler, in which he said that he regarded Owen as the greatest living Irishman. This really is something that can be said with all genuine feeling about Owen, because his greatness came from his own spiritual qualities rather than from any honours or dignities that could, had been showered on him. Bennach Dale, Hannah Mielish, Oini Wauna.